Let's go to the book of John. We're in chapter 8, as Nate read this morning. We're still in this intense conversation that Jesus is in with these religious leaders. He came to Jerusalem, if you recall, in chapter 7 because of the Feast of Tabernacles. He's still there. This is the same trip. John 8, we're kind of breaking up this conversation, slowing it down. But he's actually in the middle of a heated conversation with these religious leaders. And he's been saying stuff where he's been ramping up his rhetoric to them. They're getting a little bit more upset as he talks, as he goes on. They're getting more and more upset. But last week, it was interesting because for a couple of verses, it's like he turned to a separate group in the crowd. And this was a crowd that had believed. We learn, you look at your Bibles in verse 30, this is a group who had believed in him while he was speaking. And so now he gives them a brief, quick kind of discipleship 101 message. But something he says to them is going to set off the Jewish religious elite. They're listening in. They're all, there's multiple groups in this crowd. They're listening in. It's not going to sit right with them, and they're going to push back. And we're going to start looking at that pushback this morning. In fact, we're going to start looking at this pushback over the next, uh, the next few weeks because it's going to take a pretty consistent tone from here. And it's going to be about dads and fathers. And you'll see I've entitled the message, My Dad is stronger than yours, part one. You know, and I remember growing up, especially as a little boy, uh, and it wasn't like my dad got into fights with other guys' dads all the time, but we would have these conversations in locker rooms. Like, my dad could definitely beat up your dad. My dad bench presses this much weight. My dad curls this much weight. My dad used to be a barroom brawler, you know, before God. And we would actually have these, I mean, Ladies, you can believe it or not, but these conversations go on with little boys, and they go on in these locker rooms. But the other thing that's really kind of interesting, and I, and I remember this vividly, is growing up in the, in the generation of your mama jokes. And uh, so we, we had, my dad can beat up your dad, and then your mama's so fat, she can blah, 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 whatever it is. Now, uh, what's interesting is I, I grew up in many buses and locker rooms playing sports. I've heard probably some of the best your mama jokes that exist ever. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Baseball players are really, I think, the funniest group of people on planet Earth. And you, you almost have to believe it. You almost have to be in a dugout for a long period of time to realize that. But I have been around some very funny people uh, in my lifetime. But the thing about your mama jokes, and this is one of the things that you, no one could ever explain if, when you cross too far, but everyone kind of knew when you crossed the line with your mama jokes. You could call someone's mama's fat, but you couldn't really kind of, there was a line that you didn't cross. And if you crossed it, there would be a physical altercation. It just would. Because you don't, you don't talk about my mama. It's like, dude, we've been talking about your mama for 20 minutes and nothing sets you off until this one, right? So I say that to say we're about to enter this section of your daddy jokes. And it's not, they're not really jokes. It's about your daddy. But the first century Jew, this is something they didn't joke about their heritage, their patriarchy, who was their father. And you're going to see this back and forth going on here between Jesus and these Jewish religious leaders over the next couple of weeks as we go through this. And what we're going to see is this, this matter meant everything to a first century Jew. And the fact that Jesus is pushing on this topic for their benefit, by the way, they don't view it that way. They say, you're, you're my daddy joke, you're telling your daddy jokes. All right, we're going to kill you. And that's where they're going to get in verse 59. They're going to say, we've had enough with these daddy jokes, right? We've had enough of you insulting our heritage 
and our patriarchy, we're going to take you out. They were already feeling this way anyways. This just kind of ramped it up a little bit more. And so as we dive in this morning, this is kind of the section you'll start to see because they're going to respond in such a way Jesus is going to take what they respond, and that's going to drive the conversation all the way through the end of the chapter. All right, so in verse 33, we need to get the context because we've got this group in the crowd that's, that's now pushing back on what Jesus said. They're, they're pushing back on what Jesus kind of insinuated by what he said. And he insinuated, really, by what he said in verse 32, he insinuated that they needed to be made free. In other words, you are a slave presently. They didn't like this. This group did not like this. And so in verse 33, we see they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And now the question for us as interpreters is to determine who is the they here, okay? There's a lot of they's. There's, it's a big crowd, right? You've got within that crowd, you've got subsets. Jesus has just been talking to a subset, those who had believed. And typically, what do you do with pronouns? Again, not to take, you, take us back to English class, grammar, but typically, what do you do with pronouns? You, you trace it back to the nearest antecedent, okay? If I say, John is a jerk and he needs to go fly a kite, well, the he is going to refer to John. That's the nearest antecedent to John. And so if you do that in this passage, you would go right back up to the group who had believed. And so now, now the question is, the, the believers, are they actually offended by what Jesus said? And I don't think they are. And I'll tell you why as we kind of work through. There's some other people that they could refer to. It could refer to the entire audience. It could refer to the subset of unbelieving Jewish leaders. Or it could refer to the many who have believed, which is who Jesus is talking to. Now, that would be, again, odd for them to respond in such a negative way based on what Jesus just said. But it's possible, but it would be odd. And then what we're going to see, though, is based upon context and based upon what they say, it seems to me clear, and just kind of addressing this, it seems to me to be referring to the unsaved Jewish religious leaders who now jump back into the conversation. They've been overhearing it. Now they jump back into the conversation and they began push, pushing back against Jesus. And again, when you follow the pronoun they going forward, if we just traced it through John 8, this would seem to be the best interpretation of the they here in verse 33. Again, sorry to make such a big deal about a pronoun, but it's kind of nice to know who's talking and who's, who's speaking here. In fact, when you get to, uh, when you kind of go forward in verse 41, they will make fun of Jesus's questionable lineage. They're going to say, well, we weren't born of fornication. What are they implying? Yeah, we know that story Mary told. Psh, come on. Impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, come on. You got a dad running around here somewhere. You're, you were born of fornication, right? Verse 41. They're also going to call him, this they are going to call him a Samaritan. They're going to say that he had a demon in verse 48. And then eventually the same they in verse 59 are going to pick up stones to stone him. I just have a hard time believing that's the believers in verse 30. I think it's the element within the crowd that has been aggressively desiring to kill him all along. So in other words, they've been eavesdropping. They've been listening in on Jesus's instruction to the believers in verse 31. They didn't like what he said. Specifically, what they picked up was something that Jesus had insinuated. Because Jesus said in verse 32, make you free, right? He, exact that last phrase. He says, the truth shall make you free, implying what? You're not free right now. You're enslaved right now. 
That's what they didn't like. And they're responding to that. And the way they respond is really interesting. They actually tell Jesus in verse 33, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. Now, been in bondage is exactly what you think. It's a position of servant, servitude, slavery. They bring in Abraham here. Notice how they bring in their their heritage. They bring in their lineage. Our father is the great Abraham. And this is why the conversation is now going to go that direction from the rest of John 8. Because what did Jesus know about any Jew on planet earth ever in time? It wasn't enough to be a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They needed a fourth fatherhood. They needed to be a son of God. And you only became a son of God when you're born again. This is the conversation he had with Nicodemus. And you only become born again when you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So they needed to be a son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and God. Just those other three were not enough. Physical lineage never got anyone into heaven. As we've said before, God doesn't have any grandchildren, just children. It doesn't matter who your dad was. It doesn't even matter if he was a pastor or a missionary or planted 400 churches in Africa. It doesn't matter what somebody in your heritage did. It matters what you do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why 1 John 5 says, if you have the son, guess what also you have? You have life. And if you don't have the son, you don't have life. Well, how do you have the son? It's when you put your faith in him. God unites you to the son of God. And that's why his righteousness is credited to you. So anyways, we can go on and on about that. But they say, we're of Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage. Now, he uses this word never, or it's translated never. It means yet ever at any time or not yet ever, never. And what they're stating is this, as Abraham's descendants, so go back to Genesis chapter 12, from that point forward all the way to John 8, they're saying that they have never at any time been in bondage to anyone, so why would they need to be made free? Now, those of you that know your Bible, you got a pinball swirling around your head. Wait a minute, what are they talking about? Do they... Do they not even know their own history? They don't have facts on their side here. And I don't know why they're making this argument. It's a poor, even a logical argument. But it just goes to show that sometimes, even we do this, when we're in an argument and we're just out to win the argument, we say a lot of crazy things, don't we? And it just goes to show that many unconverted, natural men, unsaved people, they are the kings of self-deception. You know, I, was, I heard a story about a pastor one time, and uh, he wanted to visit this particular inmate. There was a connection to this inmate in a, in a federal prison. He was sitting on death row, and he had some kind of connection in his church body to this inmate. So he, he wanted to go visit this inmate on death row. And, and, and the guy was guilty, admitted he had done whatever he had done. I don't know the details there. He goes through this long process to get in death row, and, and they bring the guy into the room, and he's sitting there, and here's this guy come in, sits down in an empty room with him and this guy that's on death row. Now, I don't know about you, just talking about it like, gives me hives. I mean, I just like, that would be so nervous to do that. I'd be excited about it, but it's kind of nerve-wracking. You're in this cell. This guy from death row walks in, and so he's like, where do you start with a guy on death row? Where do you, what, what do you start? He said, well, I'm going to start with the gospel. And so he, he starts talking to the guy, and the first question he asks, because he had been trained this way, he says, now, um, so-and-so, would you consider yourself a good person? And he thought, as the words were coming out, he thought, that's the dumbest question in the world, because of course this guy doesn't consider himself a good person. He's on death row. You know what the guy on death row said? 
yeah, I, I'm a pretty good person. <laughs> so I just point that out to say that natural man is self-deceived and oftentimes doesn't even recognize it. And here they are. We've never been enslaved. And yet, when you look at the scriptures, it's very clear that they have. We know that the descendants of Abraham were in bondage in Egypt following Joseph's death for 400 years. This is the whole story of Moses. This is the whole book of Exodus, right? They needed to be delivered from bondage. They were enslaved in Egypt. In fact, six months from the events we have in chapter 8, they're going to be celebrating Passover. What does Passover remind them of? Their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And so they had forgotten about that. They had forgotten also that the descendants of Abraham were in bondage in both Assyria through exile uh, indefinitely and then Babylon for 70 years. But even more telling was the third thing that they forgot. They were enslaved right now. (laughs) The very audience that Jesus is talking to was not free to do anything they wanted because Rome had dominion over Jerusalem and surrounding areas. Every time they walked on a road to go out of Jerusalem back home, they were reminded because there was a Roman garrison waiting for them to pay taxes. And they would say, well, wait a minute, I just paid taxes on this donkey on the way in. Yep, you got to pay it on the way out too. And guess what? They could say, well, I forget it. I have rights. I'm going to take this to the court. And the Roman soldiers would be like, okay, let me show you your rights. Boom. And they would have just beat them to a pulp if not killed them. They were enslaved at the very moment Jesus is talking about. So you imagine their response. We've never been a slave to anybody. And it's like, what a joke. Yes, you have. How could you even say that? And so this is their response. How could you even say that we will be made free? And you see their evaluation is off. And because their evaluation is off, they're offended by what Jesus said instead of saying, well, he's got a point there, right? yeah, we are enslaved. We, we do need to be made free. And quite frankly, if they're having a different conversation with a different person on the same day, apart from Jesus Christ, you know what they would have recognized? They needed a Messiah to come to free them from the Romans. They would have recognized it. But because Jesus said it, they were offended. They were upset. He had insinuated that they were slaves. And again, just like they constantly do, they take his words and they don't take them well. They don't take them accurately. And so I believe as Jesus is looking at them in verse 33, he senses their irritation. And so he's going to try to go on and explain, but Jesus is not trying to just smooth this over and make them like him. He actually explains with truth. And it's actually becomes more offensive (laughs) the longer he goes. And so in verses 34 through 35, I believe he's clarifying things here for them, but I don't think they're going to like his clarification as we're going to see their response. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. And so Jesus starts with this phrase. He uses it a lot in the Gospels. We read it in the New King James. It says, most assuredly. In the Greek, it's amen, amen. It's a repeated word for emphasis. And it was used to to really give an emphatic way. It was Jesus' way of saying emphatically, Listen up, what I'm about to say to you is super duper trustworthy. You can take what I'm about to say to the bank. I think the Net Bible says, I tell you the solemn truth. Solemn truth. You need to consider what I'm saying. This is super duper trustworthy. And this is what he's about to say. Most assuredly, I say to you, and he says this phrase, whoever commits sin 
is a slave of sin. Now, this word commit is interesting. We want to look at it and slow down a little bit. But it means to make, it means to do, it means to produce, to bring about, or to cause. The word typically described an external act that manifested in something tangible, okay? It's something you do that produced. It's something you did externally that produced something. And in this case, what does it produce? So what external thing did you do that produced? It's, it's sin, okay? It's a breaking of God's law. Jesus is attempting to clarify what he meant. But again, it's not going to smooth it over. They're not going to like this explanation either. In fact, it's going to upset them a little bit more, um, as we'll see. But the, this next point, and this is a, a very technical point, and I typically apologize for this, but I don't, I don't necessarily want to apologize because I think it helps our understanding. I try not to get technical unless I feel like it helps our understanding. But I think it's very important. And because when you, when you look at that phrase, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, we would naturally come away and say, oh, he's talking about everybody. And in some ways, there's a general principle where that's true. And we'll talk about what that general principle is. But the question is, what is he talking about in this context? Who is he identifying here, the one committing sin? And so this is what we want to mention, that the word commit, and this is very important to understand, it's what's called an articulated participle. Okay, participles in the Greek language can go, they can, they can emphasize more of a verbal aspect, like an action, or they can emphasize more of an adjectival aspect. In other words, they're describing a person, not describing an action, but describing a person. When it's articulated, meaning it's got the word the in front of it, it swings to the adjectival side. It's describing a type of person. And so when you look at committing sin, we're not talking about this guy, oh, he's out there smoking and chewing and drinking. And that's not what we're talking about at all. We're talking about a sinful person or a sinful one, okay? That's describing a type of person. It's not talking about someone who uh, is continually sinning. Some interpreters will make that comment here that there's continual sin, but they're missing the point of this articulated participle. That's not what it's describing at all. In fact, articulated participles, you can use them in the present tense, and it means a one-time act. You have to look at the context. We have to look at those things to determine what it's saying. And so the point is this. It's not talking about someone who continually sins or someone who habitually sins. That's another way commentators will say, if you, if you commit sin, if you habitually sin, you're going to be a slave of sin. Well, if you, com- if you habitually commit sin, are you a slave of sin? Yeah, by definition, you are. That's just not what he's saying right here. Okay, is that, I don't know if that helps or not or if that makes it worse. But what this is, is this is describing anyone who has missed the mark. That's what the word sin means. Regarding what? God's righteous standard. Whether that's one time, occasionally, or habitually, that is not brought out in this word. That's my point. It's just describing a sinful person, a sinful one. And we might say that. And so this is anyone who has missed the mark, regardless of their intentionality to do so, their unintentionality to do so. If it was an accident or it was aggressively, they're going to break God's law and sin. It's just talking about a sinful person. And why do I make such a big deal about that? Because if you go through and you, you, you recognize this distinction, especially the distinction Jesus is going to make in verse 35, If you look at the distinction Jesus makes in 35, he's making a distinction between a slave, okay, the slave of sin, this person, this sinful person, and a son who abides 
forever. He's making that distinction. And so I would say when Jesus says, he who commits sin, this sinful one, he's talking about an unbeliever here in this passage. That's what he's saying. Whoever commits sin, the sinful one, as he goes on to say, and I need to flip over to verse 34 here, whoever commits sin, the sinful one is a slave of sin. Now, is that backed up by other places in scripture? Are unbelievers slaves of sin? Yes, clearly. That's, that's a consistent theme as taught in the Bible. And so he's going to contrast that with a son. And the reason for this, and this is, I think, big picture now. Let me just go big picture. Why is this significant to this particular audience? Because they thought they were sons of Abraham. They thought they were going to be in the house forever, just based on their physical lineage. And now he's saying a slave, whoever's a sinful person, is, is a slave to sin, and that slave will not abide in the house forever, even though God has made unconditional promises to the nation of Israel, unless you trust in Jesus Christ, you will be put out. So that's big picture context, I think, of where he's going. So he says the sinful one or the unbeliever is a slave of sin. That's present indicative right now. Jesus is speaking. This person is a slave of sin. So again, what type of person? The unsaved person. They're in bondage. They're in bondage to what? They're in bondage to the sin nature. We'll, we'll look at that in a second. And they don't want to hear that because they think they're Abraham's free sons. And Jesus said, you aren't free. You're enslaved. You need a liberator. And, and I'm here. <laughs> I'm here to do it for you. They just don't respond. In fact, notice that the word sin, slave of sin, it's singular. It's also articulated. Uh, Paul does this also in Romans Six, articulated means it has a definite article in front of it, the sin, okay? And so what is Jesus saying? Well, I believe he's saying the one who sins, the person, the sinful one, if you will, is a slave of the sin nature. In other words, it speaks of this source of all sin in the believer's life. By the way, this is always true of unbelievers. It doesn't mean that unbelievers can't be nice. It doesn't mean they can't cook you cookies, bake you cookies, and, and put a glass of milk in front of you, Right? That doesn't mean that at all. It just means everything they do is sourced from a sinful nature, okay? Religious acts all over the world and through the history of the world, uh, many times when, when, when unsaved people perform those acts, they're sourced from the sin nature. Even though they look good to you and I externally, they're of no value in the sight of God because all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So it doesn't matter how good it looks. All it's saying is this, is that unsaved people are enslaved by the sin nature all the time. And let me just take a sidebar. This is why we encourage our young people not to marry an unbeliever, because you are signing up to marry somebody that lives from one source all the time. That's the sin nature. And in case you wonder what that source produces, go to Galatians 5 and read it and tell me if that's what you want to wake up to in the morning. You don't. Not a, it's bad enough when, when people are married to a believer that walk according to that source, right? But if that's the only source they have, don't sign up for that. <laughs> don't, do not sign up for that. Move on. God's got something much better for you. So there's my sidebar for the moment. Now, if this is true of unbelievers, it, it's also true of believers in the sense that when believers present themselves to sin, they become enslaved by sin. But they do it with a choice. Unbelievers have no choice. This is what Jesus is talking about. But let me just show you that believers have a choice. 
Uh, in fact, when a person sin, it just reveals that the sin natures reign over that person in that moment. Here's the believer's choice, Romans 6, 12 through 13, 16. By the way, this is part of the, 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 the uh, deliverance that Jesus provides, deliverance from sin's power right here in Romans 6. But you know, as a believer, you can possess deliverance from sin's power, but never benefit from it because you don't, we're not taking advantage of what God did to free you from sin's power. So you're not dominated by it. But look at how it words this to believers in Romans 6. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? And although this isn't the point of the passage this morning, let me just encourage you. Now, it's not really an encouragement. Let me just point out, every time you commit an act of sin, you are enslaved by the sin nature in that moment, even though as a believer, you don't have to be. Understand that every time you commit an act of sin, every time you lose your temper, it's not about you stop losing your temper. It's about you and I learning to live from the correct source of the Christian life. And guess what? Your temper will be taken care of if we can learn that. And that tru- those truths are taught in Romans 6. But what Jesus is saying here to this group is you're a sinful one. You're an unsaved person. And thus, you are always a slave to sin. Right now, you're enslaved. And I love, I don't love a lot of things that Augustine said, but I do love this thing. He pointed out, uh, especially for the believer, that slavery to sin is, is worse than other forms of slavery. And I thought, wow, that's a big statement. But consider this, slavery to sin, you never have rest from an unrelenting master. You know that slaves across the world, they, they at times get to sleep in a bed. They get to rest. They get to be out of the watchful eye and the, and the whip from the master. But when we're believers and we've got a sin nature indwelling us, we never get rest from this enslavement master that wants to enslave us to sin. And he said, uh, other slavery is allowed for hope of freedom. Maybe the, the master would release you or, the, or you could escape from the master. But you know that as long as you walk in these human bodies, you've got a sin nature indwelling these bodies or indwelling sin indwelling these bodies that you could never escape. Here's the good news of the gospel. You you think the good news of the gospel is Jesus paid your penalty. That is good news. But wait, there's more. It's like the best infomercial in the world. There's more. He's also provided deliverance from the power of sin. The very thing that you can't get rid of, the very thing you can't escape on your own, he's provided the ability to be liberated from that. That's part of what he's talking about in this passage is he bounces back and forth from different groups. Right now, he's talking to an unsaved group that's always dominated by sin, and they're, they're upset about that because they don't think they've been enslaved by anyone, including their own sin nature. Now, the other reason I believe that contextually that he's talking when he says slave, that he's talking about an unbeliever is this very next phrase here, as we see in the text, a slave does not abide in the house forever. Again, a slave, I believe, refers to unbelievers who are enslaved to their sin nature as a mode of existence, their only mode of existence, right? Again, believers have two modes, sin nature or God. That's, that's your two modes. And, and, and at every point in every day, you're functioning from one of those two sources 
And, and so it's very important for us to understand. But notice how he says, the slave does not abide in the house. And I, I actually think that's a very odd phrase because he's saying that at some point, the slave does abide in the house. At some point, the slave is in the house. The point of abiding is he doesn't remain there. And so the question becomes, how does the slave in this context even end up in the house? <laughs> he's talking about the house of God, Right. Again, abide means to remain, to dwell. It's, it's spoke of someone dwelling in a place. But I think what he's saying, is, and I think it's very specific to Jesus's audience, as he's talking to this Jewish nation that has been given so many privileges. In fact, the gospel message went to them first. The Messiah went to them first. He presented himself by many infallible proofs over and over again, these signs and wonders. He's presented himself. They're ready. They're in the house. They're ready to just walk right into the kingdom but they have to believe in the Messiah. And we learn in John 1.1 that what? They rejected him. They rejected him. And as a result of rejection, they are gonna be put out of the house. You know, some of the privileges we read about, Romans 9, four through five, is just a great quick list. Notice everything they have. Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, notice this, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So they had all of these privileges. They were, they were set up to stay in the house. They were set up to move from a category of slave to an adopted son. And because they rejected the very one sent to them, they're going to be put out of the house one day. This is what Jesus, I believe, is saying to his audience. He's basically saying the privileges that you have as a Jewish nation would not go on if you rejected this revelation of the Messiah. You're not going to get any further revelation. You're going to be put out of the house just like a slave was in this culture. The very work of the Messiah that was delivered was designed to deliver them from sin, deliver them from being in bondage is the very person they were rejecting in this moment. And Jesus is just saying, you're not going to abide in the house forever. This offer is not going to extend forever. You need to respond or you're going to find yourself out of the house is kind of, I believe, what he's saying. And this illustration used by Jesus just pictures the common cultural understanding of a slave versus a son. Simply put, a son retained his privileges all of his life due to his relationship. By the way, it was always due to his relationship. It was never due to his behavior. It's very important to understand when it comes to eternal security. Because when you're born again, you're put into a new relationship with God. You're born into the family your behavior didn't get, in, get you into the family. Your behavior doesn't get you out of the family. In fact, each one of you, as you're sitting there today, had a mother and father. And I don't even know some of you, and I just know that about you. Right? That's not hard to know. You had a mother and father, and the reason your mom and dad went home with you the day that you were born at the hospital was not because they came down to the hospital nursery and said, we'll take that one. He's not crying. He's not pooping. I'm taking that one home with me. That's not how you ended up at home. You ended up at home because they watched your mother give birth to you. They tagged you at that moment. You belong to them through birth. And guess what? You can be the biggest, I've had lots of words, pain in the rear end to your parents, but you'll never stop being their child. You should, you should have seen some of the things I put my mom through growing up. And here she is sitting, listening to me teach the Bible. It's a shock. Like, what? <laughs> I can't believe she thinks I have anything to say of value after the life I lived as a teenager. I really cannot believe that. But 
miracle of all miracles. But the point is this, regardless of how I treated her growing up, I was always her son. I could never stop being her son. Even if I went down to the courthouse and I got my name changed and I did got uh, whatever, and I denied that I was a clerk and I changed my last name, her DNA is always running through my blood. I can't get rid of it. And the same is true about spiritual birth. What Jesus is saying here is unless you have that birth, you're just like a slave. You're going to be put out of the house at some point, even with the privileges that you had. And the problem for Jesus's audience and the problem for Paul's audience later, as as Jesus dies, resurrects, goes back to heaven, and Paul now is leading missionary journeys, is the same thing. They are clinging to the wrong father. The Jewish people are clinging to their physical lineage and Abraham. They needed to cling to their spiritual lineage. There was another gentleman, another son of Abraham that, guess what, was also a slave and put out of the house, even though he was a physical descendant of Abraham. Remember Ishmael? What a great illustration for the Jewish nation here to be a physical in the physical lineage of of Abraham and yet being put out of the house as it relates to enjoying the kingdom promised to the nation of Israel. Just incredible things here. And I love what Jesus says here. It's it's like he's talking to a group of unbelievers, but he drops in, he sprinkles in these truths for believers for us to just be like, man, this is awesome. Let's just rejoice in this. And what he's going to say is, in contrast to the slave who can be put out of the house, a son abides forever. And he switches words here in the Greek. It's the Greek word huios. It means a full-fledged male offspring or an heir of your father. Now, that may not mean a lot to us, but let me give you some contextual things why this is so significant. And just something that is, as we leave today, we can say, praise God, this is awesome right? Because here's the deal. In Roman culture, naturally birthed children, that that was called technon. That's the Greek word technon. You know that naturally birthed children of Roman fathers did not always receive an inheritance? In fact, what what the father would do, oftentimes he would have concubines, maybe multiple wives. He had different children born over here. And he says, you know, I I like this wife. She's really good for me. So I'm going to give her, the children I had with her, the inheritance. But this one over here, this concubine, she's always talking back. She's always burning my toast or whatever. You know, I'm not going to confirm an inheritance on her child. And he had this this arbitrary way of conferring an inheritance. In fact, the culture called it adoption. It was an official adoption ceremony. So in this culture, you didn't adopt other people's children. You adopted your own. It was a way of conferring the inheritance upon them, okay? So I'm giving that background here. Uh, as, as we decided, it was, it was arbitrary. It took time. Fathers would oftentimes put their children on like a probationary period. Let me just watch you until you turn 19, and then I'll decide if I'm going to adopt you or not or do this ceremony. And so once they adopted a child, a technon, at that adoption ceremony, that child became a huias, a son. Okay? It, was a, it was a title. It was a category. Here's the beautiful thing. I told you I want to give you something to rejoice in when you leave. The beautiful thing about being born into God's family, the moment you become born again, the moment you become a technon, a child of God, that very moment you are adopted as a son. No probationary period, no stepchildren in God's, no redheaded stepchildren in God's family, right? As we say, nobody's a second-class believer. I don't care if, <laughs> I don't care if I'm a pastor and you haven't been to church in 14 years. Who You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You're an adopted son. You have an inheritance reserved in heaven for you, which cannot fade away. That's what Peter says. And guess what? I I love what's brought out here. Let's go to Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself 
bears witness with our spirit. The spirit is trying to convince you and I of something, that we are children, technon of God. And if children, then what? Heirs. <laughs> if you're a child of God as you sit here today, regardless of your behavior, regardless of your faithfulness, now obviously we want to encourage you to be faithful. We want to encourage you to walk with the Lord. But regardless of that, the moment you believed, you were made an heir of God. Now, go on to say, you say, man, that doesn't sound fair. Does God really know what he's getting into with me? He does. And I'm going to tell you how. Because you're an heir of God, and then notice that next phrase, and you're a joint heir with Christ. So you know why he can guarantee your inheritance? Because of Jesus Christ. And that's good news. Because if it was based on me, I'd find a way to mess that up. You would too, probably, some of y'all. If you're like me, we would find a way to mess that up. But here's the good news. So Jesus basically says that in this passage. A son does what? Abides forever, forever and ever. And he uses this word. And so he's willing to make the slave free, right, in this passage. But a slave's not going to pursue freedom unless they realize that they're in bondage. And this is what the problem with Jesus' audience. They didn't think they needed help. They didn't think they would seek it. Again, if you're in a pool and you're swimming, you don't need a lifeguard. You don't see the need for a lifeguard. Now, the lifeguard may know that you're going to an undercurrent in about three feet. And you're going to realize you need the lifeguard in about three feet. But right now, you don't realize you need the lifeguard. This is where Jesus' audience is. They don't even realize they need deliverance. And the fact that he's saying they do offends them deeply. Instead of saying, well, what do you mean by that? What, what, what are we talking about? And this is really the tragedy of the whole conversation. These men need it. They don't realize it. That's the tragedy of every witnessing opportunity that ends with someone saying, ah, think about that. Ah, consider that. Ah, I don't know if I can believe that. Ah, I don't know if that's right. I have to check that out. That's the tragedy because they need a savior and they don't realize it. And this is where these men are. In fact, when Jesus says that a son abides forever, he uses this three-word phrase in the Greek. It's really cool. He's going to use it later. We'll bring it out again. Um, but he uses it a few times in the book of John. It's the phrase isotone Iona, literally translated into the ages. It's an emphatic way to say forever and ever and ever. And I, and I loved, I can't remember which child, so I'd love to give one of them credit, but I, I can't do it this morning. But I, one of my children, as they were memorizing John 3.16, I love the way they quoted it. Uh, in fact, I, I wish they would have never learned it the right way because this just sounded so good. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting eternal life. And they put both words in there because I think they're looking at two different versions while they're memorizing. And it's everlasting eternal. That's kind of what this phrase says. Forever and ever and ever you remain a son. And now Jesus in verse 36 is going to try to wrap up his point here. He's going to say, uh, you know, he's going to say this, this therefore. Okay, so he's going to wrap up his point, and then he's going to take the fact that they mentioned Abraham, and now that conversation is going to go that way after he makes his clarifying wrap-up point. And he's going to say here, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And so again, therefore, it shows us he's making this concluding statement. And what is he making a concluding statement from? What are you being made free from? What's free from what? Well, I think it's clear now as we get to this point in the conversation, it's everything to do with sin, everything that entangles with sin, every enslavement to sin, 
The first deliverance that you and I need is deliverance from the penalty of sin. That's why we attempt to preach the gospel every week and share that with people because we want them to know that someone was sent to die for their sins so they they would never have to pay the penalty, that there's freedom from that. That's freedom from the penalty of sin. Jesus has been talking about, and I think he's continuing to talk about this deliverance from the power of sin. And then one day, there's gonna be future deliverance from the very presence of sin. When we get our glorified bodies, we will not have indwelling sin anymore. And that's gonna be a great opportunity, a great season of, of eternal life where we don't have to deal with the sin nature anymore. But, it, but, but so many times, and I, and I love the way this, this says it, it's subtle. Who's the one making you free here? It's the son. It's not you. We need to stop bumping the spotlight to us because religion wants to jump in there and tell you how you must free yourself from sin. And that's why religion has a market. It's got a, it's cornered a market in the world because everyone thinks, well, I got it. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. I got to do something. But let me tell you this. The Bible's very clear. There's one liberator in chief. It ain't you. And the position's not vacant. It's currently occupied. And it's always going to be occupied because there's only one man who can deliver you from all of the entanglements of sin. His name is Jesus Christ. And the way he did it is he died for your sins and rose again. That's the truth of the word of God. So I don't know why we go about life either trying to deliver ourselves from the penalty of sin. That's what religion does with good works or going about our Christian life focused on delivering ourselves from the power of sin by being more devoted and more committed and more this and more that. We literally take our eyes off of the one who can set us free, put it on ourselves, and that doesn't work out very well. Just through experience and through the teaching of the word of God, that ain't gonna work out well for any of us. And so here we go. He's presented. The son will make you free. It's interesting because in verse 32, what did he say? It was the truth that made you free. Now, is that a contradiction? No, it's a beautiful, complimentary concept that truth sets you free because truth is based and anchored in a person who executes actually liberating you. As we said last week, the written word of God is always designed to point to the living word of God. If you've got doctrine without relational intimacy, you are missing the entire point of studying the Bible. Studying the Bible is designed to drive you to the person of Jesus Christ. You are to fall more in love with him every moment of every day because of what you're reading, not just getting geeked up because you know a Greek word or two and you understand how eschatology fits in order. That's not what life is about. Life is about Jesus Christ. For me to live is Christ. It's the only reason you're breathing today. You are a vessel for Jesus Christ. He loves you. He wants intimacy with you. He wants to hold your hand in life. That's what he wants. And everything that we read here is designed to drive you to that person because he wants to be your liberator. In fact, he doesn't want you to be liberated any other way. He's a jealous lover of your soul, if you will. And he knows that he will provide lasting and enduring deliverance that nothing else that this world can offer will do. And those of you who are out there, you've tried other things in the world. You know they don't work. In fact, may I say something a little crass? They all suck. They're just terrible. We try for a little bit, doesn't work. We move on to something else, doesn't work. And what your heart is searching for is the Lord Jesus Christ, relational intimacy with him, enjoyment of him, occupation with him, Because life is 
terrible, full of trials, but when your eyes are on the Savior, you can walk with him through any of them, holding his hand. And that's what's beautiful about the Lord Jesus. So the, the person of Christ, the Son, makes you free. And if he does that, which the if is a third-class condition, if maybe he will, maybe he won't. Not because he might not want to do it, but because we may not respond and take his hand. He's ready to set us free. And if he's going to set us free in verse 32, um, he's setting us free from the power of sin. That seems to be the context here, uh, as we've talked about. And if the son sets you free, notice the promise, you shall be free. If Jesus does it, there's not going to be a failure in launch, okay? He's, there's not going to be a launch failure there. He's going to get it done. And the, when the son sets you free, it's a guaranteed promise if you rely on him. In fact, that addition of the word indeed means really or truly. And so when he liberates someone, it's done in a full and complete way. That's, that's exactly what the word of God teaches. And so you want to trust in that kind of liberator. You don't want to trust in yourself. You know, if someone offers to do a project at my house and they know what they're doing, I'm turning over the tools because I'm terrible at projects. I can't even nail a nail. I know, feel sorry for me, please. <laughs> Got lots of problems. But any, anyways, um, so Jesus kind of finishes his concluding remarks. Now, he, now he's going to shift. And this is where the fatherhood comes in. This is where they begin to start uh, talking about fatherhood. He's going to go to Abraham and he's going to concede, you know what? Abraham is your, your father. I'll concede that. But you know what? In verse 37 says, you don't act like Abraham. <laughs> I know he's your father physically, but you don't act like him. He says, I know you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Jesus says, intuitively, I know that. You're Jews. I get it. You're, you're sons of Abraham. I, I get that. In fact, even as Jesus is making these comments about them being enslaved, he knows that they're physical descendants of Abraham, but gives us a contrast. But in contrast to your father, in contrast to the physical lineage that you come from, you're so much more different than anybody in your, in your family. And one of the reasons they're different is, is they, they are seeking striving to find, seeking after. This word describes an earnest seeking and anxiety over the search. There's an urgency communicated here. It just implies serious effort. And what he's saying is you seek, uh, what are they seeking there in verse 37? You seek to kill me. They are angling for any way possible to take Jesus out right now as he's speaking to them. This is what the president indicative does. And so right now, even he's talking about that, they're putting serious thought into how they can take him out. And the reason for their intensity is what Jesus is going to identify as in the very next phrase. They have absolutely zero value for Jesus's word. This is what Jesus tells them in verse 37. He says, my word has no place in you. And this phrase, no place means in terms of capacity. It'd be like filling up a water. If you kept putting water in here, it's like, hey, I got no more room in here. I can't, I can't receive any more water. It's going gonna, it's gonna to spill. And what he's saying is they've reserved no capacity to take in anything that he's teaching them. Now, that's a problem when divine revelation is being given. That's a problem for each, and, uh, each one of us when we've already made up our mind on biblical truth and someone is teaching something that challenges that. And we're like, oh, I have no room for that. We should always take a level of humility and be willing to listen to the word of God being taught to see if what we have believed is wrong. We should always receive with humility or at least open a place. This is what his audience was not doing. 
And so they were rejecting his teaching on freedom. And the way they were rejecting, they literally weren't allowing any room in their minds and their hearts to receive us. And oh, by the way, it's exactly the opposite of what Abraham did. This is his point. (laughs) You're nothing like your father. Because in Genesis 12, Yahweh told Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. And what did Abraham do? He received that word and he left. Genesis 15, God told Abraham, I will give you descendants that number the stars. And Abraham said, he believed God and he credited it him as righteousness. In Genesis 22, he finally got that promised child and God told him, go, go kill your son. And we read in Genesis 22, Abraham rose up early in the morning to go do it. See, Abraham was a receiver of God's word. His descendants weren't. Jesus is pointing out this contrast here. Now, finally, let's close this morning in verse 38. He's going to start contrasting fathers. And this really sets the stage for the rest of the chapter. He says, I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Now, Jesus has said this many times in John, but he's basically just saying, what I see my father do and say, that's what I do. I'm just a chip off the old block, right? We use that phrase a lot. Jesus said, I'm just a chip off the old block. And what he's saying in essence is the very words he speaks, the very message he's been communicating, the very message they're rejecting, the very person they're rejecting is directly sent by the father and he's only doing what the father wants him to do. He's doing what he's seen the father do. He's saying what he's seen the father say. This is what Jesus is saying. And this should have been reason enough for his audience to listen to him. But they, they had already made up their mind. They're rejecting him. But notice what Jesus goes on to say. And guess what? You do the same thing. You're doing the same exact thing that you've seen your father do. And you do right now in this moment, you're doing the same thing that you've seen with your father. Now, they probably think he's talking about Abraham at this point. But that would have been a, <laughs> that would have been a contradiction to verse 37, because he says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but contrasting you from Abraham, but they might think he's talking about Abraham right now. He says, you've seen, see with perception. You, in other words, you understand what you've seen. And Jesus is telling these men that they want to do right now the things that they've seen or understood their father to do. The question is, what father is Jesus talking about? And, and by the way, this is the comment this is the, the angle of this conversation that's going to take this, this conversation off the rails, right? This is a, a steam locomotive overheating right now, and it's about to jump the track. And it's about to go in a place that gets very violent and aggressive because he had just told them that in this very moment, you're seeking to kill me. And what he's going to tell them as they go forward is he's going to tell them, in fact, look what they say in verse 39, Abraham is our father, and Jesus is going to say, nope, the devil is your father. And that's where it's going to go haywire. And so we'll pick up there next week. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you again for just another look at the Lord Jesus and to watch him navigate this conversation, the heart that he has behind it to convince these men of truth, even in light of the fact that they wanted to kill him. And we're just so grateful for the things that he shared. We just rejoice, Lord, if, if we're taking away one truth, that you, you are the liberator from all entanglements with sin, penalty, power, and presence. We rejoice in that truth. We rejoice in the truth that when we become a child of God, we are automatically adopted as sons of God. We have a full inheritance because of your dearly beloved son. So we're just so grateful this morning as we leave. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.